This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox, Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, here to tell you everything that's hot in the book world. Today we're going to be talking with Jeff Kinney, who's the creator of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series. We'll also take a call from PW Reviews Editor Sam Slayton, who will tell us what's hot in military nonfiction and history. But But first... first We've got some highlights this uh, of this week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So um, this week we have in the magazine the best-selling books yeah. of 2012, uh, which oh. uh, I, th- I think it's interesting to look at, at what topped the charts. And, of course, there's a, a lot of gray at the top. Yes, I can imagine. And, of course, we're talking about Fifty Shades. That's right. Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades Darker, and Fifty Shades Freed were the top three books for the Nielsen BookScan Top 20, the Amazon Kindle Top 20, and the Amazon Print Top 20. So no matter how people read or where they buy, those are the books they're looking at. And it's impressive that they're getting it from all each of those outlets, too. It's not just print. It's from uh, e-books as well. That's right. And uh, number four on all three lists yeah. is also The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. Wow. So clearly that book had appeal beyond its original young adult demographic. And once, right. once the movies came out, I think that really grabbed people. And continues, sure. Yeah, and um, now that uh, I think Entertainment Weekly just released the first photos from movie number two, which is Catching Fire. So right now um, on these lists for 2012, Catching Fire was number five on the Nielsen list and the Amazon Kindle list, a little lower on Amazon Print. Mm-hmm. That's number seven. Uh, but I expect that that's going to get a boost uh, as more news comes out about the movie and, of course, when the movie itself hits the theaters. Right, right, as it always seems to do, bump it up a little bit. Exactly. Uh, what else have you got on your uh, your bestseller paying attention list? Well, here's here's what we have. This is kind of an interesting. This for the first week, uh, this comes in at number seven. It's the uh, Wheat Belly Cookbook. That's right, the Wheat Belly. Uh, this is 150 recipes to help you lose the weight, lose the wheat, and find your path back to health. This coming out by Rodale by William Davis, and uh, I think it was a year, year or two ago, he had a book called The Wheat Belly Diet Book. Mm-hmm. And in this, he argues how we are uh, forming bellies, um, or, or at least the, the, the large bellies uh, that so many Americans and so many people have are due to wheat. And he was saying that he argues that the, uh, the wheat in our diet is what is making us fat and unhealthy. So here is a cookbook that is uh, based on his first book. Um, uh, or on, on his diet book that is talking about, it actually offers recipes. Mm-hmm. And it's it's on you know, the top 10 list. I certainly know a lot of people with celiac or gluten intolerance, wheat intolerance. Um, there, there seems to be maybe some increasing awareness of it and maybe also some increasing incidence. Yeah, of it. you're absolutely right. And I think I remember writing a piece for Publishers Weekly, I want to say last year, uh, when I first saw the number of books, uh, gluten-free books coming out. Mm -hmm. I remember when, I even remember when uh, vegan books started coming out. And and at first you you tend to think that this is a a fad when you see the first one. And then you see them building, and you see that the sales are out there. Therefore, people are buying. You know, there's obvious interest. And and as you were saying, I, I've just known more and more people who do have uh, you know, suffer from celiac disease or are otherwise you know gluten intolerant. So I've been seeing a lot more books on that coming out, and I think we're going to continue to see more. I also find those interesting as, as someone who is a host. I love to cook for my friends, and so I will stockpile cookbooks uh, that are narrowly focused that way because I don't have a gluten intolerance, but maybe someone who's coming over to my house does. And it's so handy to just be able to grab a cookbook and say, I know that my friend can eat everything in here. Yeah, that's true. And what I've also done, uh, and I've, I've done this over vacation with friends where I've uh, prepared a meal, realizing that two of my friends are, are vegans or or have some sort of dietary restrictions or, mm-hmm. or choose not to eat something or for another, for one reason or another. And so I will, I, I'll take it as kind of a personal challenge oh, to see fun. how yeah. I can create the same recipe 
but with different ingredients that they can all eat. And even if I'm preparing two dishes, even if they look, you know, they, they end up looking the same mm-hmm. and often tasting very similarly, but using different ingredients. So but one is poison and the other's not. To, to certain bodies, <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. So, um, and... What else is in the... Is, is this the nonfiction list that you're looking at? Yes, right? I'm looking at the nonfiction list right now. So what right else now. is there? Um, let's see. Well, that is, that's the biggest one that I've seen for, for that. Again, the Barefoot Contessa, which we talk about, and... Um, Ah, I'm see Joel Austin. Uh, this has been on for a while. Uh, Thirty one promises to speak over your life. Uh, so we still see a little bit of the uh, self uh, help uh, books coming out. The nearest resolution. Book. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, and in the fiction list, uh, I noticed that uh, Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child's 12th Al- Aloysius Pendergast thriller um, has hit the, n- the number eight spot. It's there after three weeks on. Um, and this, this wraps up a, a trilogy of theirs right. that, uh, that started, I believe it's called the, the Helen Trilogy. It started with Fever Dream and continued with Cold Vengeance. I love these titles. Thriller titles are just kind of my favorite. <laughs> Two Graves. You have, you have to say it with that gravitas. <laughs> Almost like the person on the movie phone on, 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 uh, the, who, who does the, uh, the uh, film announcements. Yes, Yep, so exactly. I'm Mark Rotella from Publishers Weekly Radio. And I'm Rose Fox. And we're talking about the bestsellers that appear in this week's issue of Publishers Weekly, which are powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Uh, also uh, hitting in the bestseller list after 150 years is Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Ah, so it's come back. Yeah, it's absolutely and... come back. I mean, I'm sure it was the equivalent of a bestseller 150 years ago and probably has been again since then. But certainly the movie has given it a big boost. I'm always happy even when, when uh, classics are giving a bo- are, are, have been given a boost and are coming up and people are reading them again because mm-hmm. of this. I wonder if there was the same boost that there must have been when Les Mis was first a Broadway show. Um. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Because you know, whether it's stage or screen, it's a very popular story that right. really resonates with a lot of people. And I think they'll be hunting down various translations to see what where it all came from. Sure. Right. Exactly. And uh, according to BookScan, uh, since BookScan began tracking sales in 2001, the Penguin Mass Market Edition, uh, which has been in print since 1987, mm-hmm. sold over 200,000 copies. So I'm sure some of that is just People have to buy it for school, but sure. some is also people who are really interested in, in yeah. exploring that end of French literature. Right. And I also want to take a look at books that are pubbing this week. Yes. And, and these, I've, I've noticed a couple of ones. And who knows, you know, some of these may appear on our bestseller list next week, as as we know, it takes about a week uh, for them, you know, once they're sold to uh, appear on any list. So. Mm-hmm. What have you got? Well, here's one. One of my favorite travel writers, William Least Heatmoon, who's known for Blue Highways. And this is a book. It's a collection of his uh, stories. I'm sorry, stories are essays, travel essays. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called Here, There, Elsewhere, Stories from the Road. Um, William Least Heatmoon talks almost exclusively and writes about America and about traveling across America. A really wonderful, insightful writer. And in our review, um, we say that a master at conjuring place, least heat moon, intertwines primeval geology with modern social mores, gorgeous scenery without tourist tackery. And he just has it. He's, like I said, one of my favorite travel writers, or at least writers of place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm thrilled to see him on uh, you, know, you know, this pubbing. And we'll see how well the book does for him that's coming out from Little Brown. I have another yeah. American story that I wanted to mention, actually. It's oh, yeah. also coming out, I think, this, sure. this week uh, or next. Um, and that's the memoir of Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And this is a, this is a very American story where she really sure. grew up um, speaking Spanish at home with her Puerto Rican. Rican family right. uh, and uh, and overcame a lot of early hardships to uh, succeed in both the academic and professional worlds and I, I think it's it's a it's a very powerful story and I think this is a book that's going to interest a lot of people uh, should we say on both sides of the aisle both people who agree with her and people who don't and people who share her background and people who don't it's uh, we uh, we said regardless of political philosophies mm-hmm. readers across the board will be moved by this 
intimate look at the life of a justice. Mm -hmm. Sotomayor is clear-eyed about the factors and people that helped her succeed, and she is open about her personal failures. And I think that's, that's what right. makes a real gripping memoir as someone who comes clean and, and just yep. says, this is, this is how it was, the pros and the cons, not, not a puff piece, not self-aggrandizing, just this is how it was. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. And who do we know who's publishing that? Yeah, that's I coming can... out from Knopf. And, it is. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's a hard cover, but I expect that if it does well, they might do a trade paperback release yeah, down the short. road. Yeah, short. Yeah, about a year from now. Great. And, and I have another book. Um, this is Mark Rotella. And this is Rose Fox. And we're talking about uh, PW's bestseller list and even beyond books that are pubbing this week. Um, oh, I was amazed to find, uh, and, and I'm sure you saw this in this week's uh, cover story of the New York Times magazine, mm -hmm. this just all-out praise uh, for short story writer George, George Saunders. Um, and, and I think that the, 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 the title on the cover said, the cover said, this could be the best book you'll read this year. And wow. And, I, and we're here in the first week of January. So right, exactly. That's a so, very strong statement. It is. It is. And it's amazing that, uh, well, see, George Saunders is, was always considered to be a writer's writer. Uh, he's had many, many followers who follow his style. Uh, he was awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant, that $500,000 grant. Uh, he teaches at uh, Syracuse University, where mm -hmm. he also attended as an MFA. He's in his mid-50s. And um, he's got quite a strong following. His first... Um, book was uh, called, uh, well, his, his first his first book came out in 19, I guess it was 1994, mm -hmm. uh, collection of uh, short stories. And this one that's coming out, 10th of December. Um, that's is, the name of it, not, this, not exactly, when it's coming no, out. No, exactly, exactly. So the 10th of December is coming out in January. Got it. Exactly. And uh, we call this, uh, the 10 stories here, six of which ran in The New Yorker, might make readers... Might make readers won over by earlier irony lace absurdities like pastoral, pastoralia's sea oak or corporate nightmares like com, C-O-M-M, com, C-O-M-M. -M. Uh, Saunders writes about everyday work life, um, and he also kind of creates fictitious lands where, where – um, and, and, and places his story within there. But it was really impressive to see such praise uh, – about what is really a, I, I think a, a, a literary writer, and we'll see how the sales do. I have a, I have a feeling it's going to be really good. Mm -hmm. And also on the short fiction side, I wanted to call out Susan Steinberg's Spectacle, which is coming out from Grey, Grey Wolf. This is a small press book, but it's it's one of those books that gets a lot of buzz around the office. Right. You know, one one editor picks it up and reads it and goes, "Oh wow, this is really good," and then it gets passed on to another who says, "Oh wow, this is really good." So I'm always interested in books that pick up a lot of attention. Like right. that. And it's also uh, a series of short stories, or maybe it's not. I, it might be a novel. It's hard to tell. It's mm -hmm. one of those books where the lines are very blurry. Right. Um, and there, the stories are, or the novel is, narrated entirely by women whose voices merge, divide, recur, and dissipate into one another. Mm. Um, but our review says it feels like a real solid statement, and it's certainly novel-like in scope and ambition. So it, it goes to a lot of interesting places talking about the lives of women in the present day, in present day America. And um, it's really uh, maybe the same woman at the heart of each one. Right. Um, oh, wonderful. Who's, and the review says she's constantly set against male counterparts, such as abusive or aloof boyfriends, a controlling and damaged father, or a hostile brother. Mm -hmm. uh, but she really delivers a multifaceted female protagonist. Um, and you know, she's not just defined by the men around her. She mm -hmm. is her own person while in some ways forced to interact with the men around her. So, again, this might be a little bit obscure for some people. Uh, it's, it's certainly a, a work I would deem literary, but that doesn't mean that it's not accessible. Sure, sure. And Grey Wolf is known to, uh, I, I think, take chances on certain books, but also do it pretty successfully in, mm -hmm. in many instances and I, and as we both like to do champion the uh, the smaller press yeah i'm mark rotella and i'm rose fox and this is publishers weekly radio that was our uh, preview of this week's bestsellers and next up we're going to be talking with jeff kinney about how a wimpy kid became a bestseller we'll be right back
Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Today we've got Jeff Kinney on the line. He's the creator of the Wimpy Kid books, most recently Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Third Wheel. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, A Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Third Wheel, is your, I mean, the seventh book in the series, and though your ninth Wimpy Kid title, right? That's right. And so this entire enterprise, and this is, this is I'm fascinated by this, was started in uh, early 2000, 2004, with an online version you created. And what was the inspiration for this? Uh, the inspiration was to get my cartoon seen by somebody. <laughs> um, you know, I, I spent a few years trying to become a newspaper cartoonist, and I couldn't break into that business because there were not many slots available, and I just, quite frankly, wasn't good enough to fill one of the available slots. And so I realized, you know, I had this dream of becoming a cartoonist, and then along came the Internet, and I realized that I could go right to an audience no matter how small, um, and uh, that's what I was lucky enough to do. I had a job where uh, we had a kid's website with a big audience, and mm. I was able to uh, put my work up there as I developed it. And when you this, this comment, was it a strip, or was this a series that you put up? Was it a single, ser- a single strip? It was, uh, I would say, a rough draft of Diary of a Wimpy Kid, but much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I put up about... I think it was about 13 or 1,400 pages online uh, by the time I was done. So I told the story of a whole school year. And I've been drawing from that source material for for a while now. And mostly now I write original um, content that's not on the website. But there's quite a lot on the website that's been the basis of my book series. Oh, that's Oh, that's incredible! And so, were you? So you would you would use that as a basis? You would you know, incorporate it into the books? I mean, was it pretty much linear as as you did that as you started writing the books? It got all discombobulated um, once once I realized I had a publisher that wanted to turn uh, my work into a children's series. I had to tell more discrete stories, and, and they had to have a different. Um, form, I guess you could say. Uh, Online, you know, I was just concerned with writing one entry per day, and I wasn't overly concerned with uh, an overarching narrative. But once I got into real books, I had to uh, make sure that the the stories were emotionally satisfied. So were you approached by a publisher? Is that how it worked? Or did you go hunting once you realized that you had a real story there? (laughs) Well, I had one of these, those kind of one in a million type stories um, where I I, I collected about maybe 12 to 20 pages of my online version of the book, and I went to New York Comic Con, mm. and I walked around and I asked a few ed- editors if they, uh, or you know, kind of um, publisher reps, I guess you could say, at the fair if they were uh, looking for content, and they, you know, everybody said, no, that's not really what you do at that kind of a kind of <laughs> fair. And, um, Just walk up to people, I, look at my portfolio, please. <laughs> yeah, they do not seem to want to see that kind of thing there. <laughs> um, but then I, I, I had heard about a publisher, I had published a uh, webcomic called Mom's Cancer, uh, which was Abrams. And uh, as I was walking out the door, I, I, I saw Mom's Cancer sitting on a, you know, in a display booth uh, shelf. And I, I went over there and I picked up the the book and the guy who engaged me happened to be the acquiring editor and I bought a copy and then told him a little bit about my um, my work and and uh, he he was open to taking a look at it and so um, and after I guess maybe 30 seconds he he told me that this was what they were looking for so it was really exciting wow. and rewarding and and not at all realistic <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're you know hoping to be a writer to, to have that kind of experience so I, I lucked out. Wow, you sure did. <laughs> You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Jeff Kinney about his Wimpy Kid book series. So just to talk a little bit about the book for some of those uh, listeners who may not be familiar with it, the main character is a middle school boy named Greg Hefley, who creates this, which is his own journal, as he likes to call it, rather than uh, than a, uh, a diary, uh, with illustrations. Was Was there a real kid who inspired Greg? I think that in, in some ways, Greg is the worst version of myself. Um, I remember when I when I started to write this book, I I was thinking, boy, there's a lot of kids 
who act very heroically, and that that wasn't me as a kid. And in fact, at the time, I was reading Harry Potter, and um, you know, I said, I I, I want to write about a kid. If I'm going to write something that's humorous, I need the, the character to be really flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I've done is I've taken a lot of my my own flaws as a as a kid and as an adult and manifested themselves in this in this character and sort of amplified them. Mm-hmm. So he's not the boy who lived so much as the boy who fled. <laughs> right. That's, that's good. I like that. <laughs> Feel free to use it. <laughs> Very good. The boy who cringed. With, the, uh, we, right, right. We've just right. given you your entire next set of titles. Right. <laughs> so what is it about middle school that promotes the desire to explore questions of, of identity? I mean, I, I think middle school, I, I mean, did, middle school is such a tough and awkward phase for so many kids. Did you consciously tap into middle school or is that how it how it came about well there were there were two reasons i chose middle school or maybe three um one is that in middle school you you really and truly have kids who are twice the size of other kids and that's mm-hmm. that's not something that you really encounter at any other phase of life um you know different stages of development too um and then also i i, I think of middle school as sort of the last bastion of childhood uh at least it was for me it's it's the last time you, you can really be a kid, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not really so interested in in you know the problems that come with uh, being a teenager. Uh, so so I wanted to to walk right up to the line. Sure. And then uh, the th- third reason is that there just aren't many books that deal with middle school. Um, so I, I or there weren't at the time. And uh, so I think that um, that was the, the, the other reason I thought that it was sort of wide open territory. But these these books have appeal for kids who are both older and younger than that middle school age. I mean, or yeah. So so I'm told not being one of them. <laughs> Maybe there is a fourth reason is that middle school also is an ambiguous um, uh, age category. You know, I, I, I don't really know how old my character is. and I, I don't really want to know. Uh, I think once you put an age to a character, then. You know, it, it it makes the the interest or the appeal of that character much more narrow, especially when you're talking about a kid. Um, so I wanted Greg to have this kind of ambiguous age. But it's it's harder to be ambiguous about some things. I mean, he's unambiguously a boy, for example. So, um, do you feel that the the book is mostly the books are mostly appealing to boys, or do you get a lot of girls who read them too? I do get a lot of girls who read the books, but it's hard to tell if. It's because they're popular with girls or because girls are just better readers than boys. And they, they sort of devour everything. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's been really exciting that the books have appealed to boys. Uh, and it, it's sort of confirming that it, it's not necessarily that boys hate reading. It's just that boys really need to, you know, if they're going to read, they really need something that appeals to them. And I, I think the humor in the books appeal to them. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Uh, you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Wimpy Kid creator Jeff Kinney about his best-selling children's books. And I we're talking about right now about boys and readership. And uh, I, I have a seven-year-old son. I have a younger daughter. But I've been reading uh, your books to him uh, for a while. He loves them. I love them. And they, they really do seem to appeal to him. And he's just now starting to get to the point where he can read them on their on, on his own. And you were talking, we were talking about um, middle school age. And how, what is it that appeals, what is it about this that you think appeals to someone as young as Summon? Well, that's been something I've had a, a little bit of a struggle with because I when I wrote these books, I actually wrote them for for adults. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, you know, I was working on them for a long time, eight, eight years, mm-hmm. I think it was, um, before I showed anything to anyone. And I always had an adult audience in mind. And that's because I, I came from comics. You know, I wanted to be a, a newspaper comic strip artist. And I always thought of comics as existing in the Washington Post, which my dad read. And uh, my father also read comics, uh, you know, even as, as an adult. And so I thought that I was writing for a much older audience. And now, you know, finding that, uh, you know, sometimes I'll go to a book signing and, and there will be six-year-old and seven-year-old kids there. Um, it surprises me. And I, I always kind of check myself. I say, you know, are, are my books appropriate for younger kids? Uh, because obviously the, the graphic style appeals to them. And I think by and large they do. You know, I, I, I actually 
I think got away with writing a whole book about puberty without, you know, without really mentioning the word or really, um, you know, crossing over the line. So I think that there's there's a sanitized way of doing everything, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'm doing that. Yeah, and also we'll we'll talk about the language and maybe the uh, the uh, uh, the slang uh, that you use as, as any kid would use uh, in the book. Now. I, it seems that I've I've heard that some some te- I've heard some people say, well, I don't know if this is really appropriate for someone who's who's seven because of the uh, uh, the misuse of English, um, and uh, I, I mean I've I've I think you had mentioned this before that it's I, I'm happy for whatever gets my son interested in reading. How do right. you feel? Well, and, and have you heard this comments before? Yeah, there. Uh, in, 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 I would attack them in, in two different ways. One. One is that, uh, you know, on the back of my first book, Greg says, I'll be famous one day, but for now I'm surrounded, I'm in, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in middle school, surrounded by morons. <laughs> and, you know, I think I, I, I remember I was on NPR once, and I was sort of attacked by somebody who was saying, you use words like moron and jerk. And I'm like, I think I, I've used moron twice and jerk three times, you know, in, in like 1,200 pages. Uh, so I don't think it's a very, you know, accurate reflection of what's in, inside the books. Um, but the misuse of grammar, which I've probably done a lot on this, you know, in this conversation already, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not too aware of it, actually. <laughs> I, w- I wasn't I, aware of it if you did either, so. <laughs> Mark I and I, I are both trained copy editors, and neither of us is red penning you right now, so you're, you're good, you're safe. I, I do definitely say me and Rowley, you know, that feels right, right. to me, you know, what a, how a kid would say it, but. I I, right. I don't I I don't think this is I think that there are other book series that sort of glory in um in 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 bad grammar uh, but I I don't think that I do unless I'm sadly mistaken and I have a terrible editor. <laughs> well, ho- hopefully your editor is uh, is entirely capable, um, and and I'm I'm sure uh, I'm sure that whoever is reading your books is presumably able to tell the difference between dialect and you know the the right. sort of formal English. Uh, that that might be used in a in a more formal setting. I mean, these are kids talking about kids, and this is a kid talking to himself, right? In these books. Yeah, I I think um, the the best compliment I feel like I ever received was that a, a critic uh, wrote that you can't sense the adult writing behind the kid, and you know you can't sense the adult who who mm. is who is writing for standing in for the kid. And I think that um, that's what I aspire to: authenticity is. That I hope that kids aren't thinking of an adult writing this, and I, I certainly don't try to moralize the kids and you know and impart each book with some sort of overt lesson. I, I like to trust the kids to figure things out for themselves. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with Wimpy Kid creator Jeff Kinney, and I, I actually have a question about uh, the setting of, of 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 your books. You grew up in Maryland, and and at the risk of you know, making it seem like this is all autobiographical, which I know it is. And it seems the setting is in, I want to almost say Minnesota, some sort of cold environment. Yeah, it's definitely got four seasons. Yeah, right. Um, right. I guess you could say a few places that it, where it doesn't take place, but I was going for something very vague, um, you know, middle, middle America, I guess you could say, Uh, you know, like Springfield and the Simpsons uh, in a way, but I I wanted to make the books feel very generic so that kids could see themselves in the the characters and the, uh, in the situations that they get themselves into. And I felt like uh, some sort of, sort of vague Americana is is what I'm going for. And and now there are games and toys based on your book. So when did it occur to you that you had created a little wimpy kid empire here? (laughs) I think the day that, really stands out for me is the day that uh, I, they were making the first movie and I got a call from somebody who was on the set in Vancouver and they said, uh, you know, this is Dara from Wimpy Kid. And I was just thinking, you know, <laughs> I'm Jeff from Wimpy Kid. Like, how did this, you know, it's right, like, right. It, it, it was the first time I saw that it got outside of me and, and I wasn't, I wasn't at the wheel in the way that, that I had been before. And, and yeah, I guess you, you know, eventually you come to understand that what you've created is a, as a property or even worse, a brand. Um, and that, that kind of saps some of the life force out of it in a, in a way. But what's great is whenever I sit down to start working on a new book, I'm completely in control and, 
and I can determine the fates of the characters. And, you know, and it, it starts really small before it gets uh, amplified along the way. And and speaking of working on new books, I, I know you probably spend your time, a lot of time writing, but one of our editors at PW mentioned that she thought you might still have some sort of full-time job. If I remember correctly, you, you did some computer uh, design work? I do. I have a, I have a regular job. It's uh, at a website called Pop Tropica, which is a website that I help create. And it is uh, it's like a virtual world for kids. And, and I spent, you know, all of yesterday in, in Boston. And, uh, you know, I have a boss and, and uh, you know, cubicle and all of that. So uh, <laughs> most of the time I do work from home. But, uh, you know, I, I go in and I go on uh, business trips as well. And did anyone ever tell you that at this point it's it's okay to quit your day job? <laughs> you know, I was just thinking of this uh, before we, we we got on the phone is that, you know, you just never want to get too big for your britches. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think of this as the Wimpy Kid uh, stuff as, as something that's like, uh, it's very similar to being a professional athlete, which is that your, 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 your window is small and you're, you know, the, the, time you're going to get that that kind of income is very brief and and uh, you better be prepared for the real world so on top of me actually liking my job I, i'm i'm trying to make sure that i you know that i come down easy once uh once um you know once once the world loses interest in in my books well that that sounds like a very sensible tack to take but it it sounds a little sad too <laughs> it is. Well, I, always, I don't mean sad in the sense of pathetic. I mean in the sense that you sound sad. You know, yeah. Well, it it, you know, it's it, one of the things I'm really trying to do this year. Is I, you know, I, I, I think that I've still got good ideas, and I'm going to write books. And there's a lot of interest, and that's great. But um, when I think of like uh, VH1 used to put out those behind the music uh, specials, <laughs> right. yeah. you, know, right. you know, they're very predictable in their format. The thirty minute mark it was you know but dark clouds were ahead <laughs> right. and, uh, you know, and then at the end they're always trying to, desperately to claw back or have some sort of comeback so i'm sure that i'll follow that exact sort of pattern you know <laughs> diary of a comeback bad. kid right. oh that's good another that'll, one that'll be you <laughs> we've been talking with jeff kinney and you can pick up his latest book which is diary of a wimpy kid the third wheel in just about any bookstore, because at least at the moment, he's a bestseller. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. Thank you. And I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. The next up, PW Reviews editor Sam Slayton is going to tell us what's hot in history and military nonfiction. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW Reviews editor Sam Slayton is here to tell us what's hot in the history and military nonfiction section of the bookstore. Thank you very much for joining us, Sam. Thanks for having me. How are you all? We're doing very well. Thank you. Great. So what do you have for us? So what do we have? We've got, uh, last year we had a couple of big anniversaries, like the War of 1812 and the Centennial of the Sinking. Um, are we seeing any any anniversaries this year? Um, there aren't a lot of big anniversaries, but that doesn't mean, we've still got a lot of really interesting books that are coming out. Um, most recently, the uh, kind of the big uh, military book that a lot of people have seen on bestseller lists, of course, is Mark Owen's No Easy Day, which was the first-hand account of the mission that killed Osama bin Laden. That is uh, appeared on our bestseller list about 18 weeks ago, and it's still going strong. Um, Mark Bowden, the author of Black Hawk Down, tried, took a stab at the same mission with the finish, but it wasn't as successful as No Easy Day. And I think what people are looking for, and again, we've seen a lot of these books come out lately, are first-hand accounts or eyewitness reports. So rather than reportage. Exactly. Um, Mark Bowden, of course, wasn't there. He's he's a great uh, reporter and a great writer, but you know, there's something about having that um, you know a primary source who can really report on what it what it sounded like, what it smelled like, what it felt like to really be there. And we've seen a lot of those books that have come out at you know near the end of uh, 2012, and we've got a couple that are coming out in 2013 as well. 
So uh, we were just talking when we were talking about the bestsellers this week. Uh, we mentioned a couple of thrillers. Do you feel like these uh, military nonfiction books still need to have that that thriller pacing to really get the broad appeal? I, I think they do, you know, and they, they draw me in, too. I'm not a reader of thrillers, and I'm not necessarily a reader of military history. But these are the hardest books for me to put down when I'm editing these reviews because, you know, I just get drawn into these mm-hmm. stories of these well, yeah, as they often term themselves, warriors, um, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they do read like thrillers. I, I think they know that people want that. They don't want the traditional reportage. They want people who have, who have been there and can report accurately from that standpoint. So these are not just military histories. These are actually military memoirs. And we've seen a lot of this come out of recent wars in the Gulf. And is this is this part of a trend, or is this something? This one something a little bit different. I, I think so. You know, as I said, people have just been scrambling to put out um, put out their their military, as you said, memoirs since um, since Mark Owen, who was later revealed to be um, actually Matt Bissonnette is his real name. Um, ever since he put out No Easy Day, um, for example, Dakota Meyer, um, who was the first living Marine awarded the Medal of Honor since the Vietnam War. Um, recently put out Into the Fire, which is his first-hand account of what he calls the most extraordinary battle in the Afghan war, and that was the Battle of Ganjagal in 2009. Mm. This guy, when he was 21 in 2009, rode in five times to save his, his fellow soldiers under heavy, heavy, heavy enemy, enemy fire mm-hmm. and managed to survive. Um, and, you know, a lot of these military memoirs are coming from people, uh, you know, who have received these rewards, been in critical battles, or were, were Navy SEALs. You know, we've got a couple coming out soon. In, in February, um, Rourke Denver, who is actually a former Navy SEAL and now a SEAL trainer, is coming out with Damn Few, which is the making of the modern SEAL warrior. And he basically takes readers through the training process, and it is horrendous and grueling. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Hell Week, and that's just five straight days, 24-hour days, of just the most grueling kind of training you can imagine. So do these books take a political angle? Um, Do they talk about justification for war or uh, post-traumatic stress or, you know, other things that are that are more sort of current events? Do they tie it into that? Or is it really just this this battle or, or this mission as an excerpt out of time? Yeah, I think I, as you said, the, the battle of mission is 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 the focus. Um, you might surmise their their political stances based on just the fact that they have they are members of the military, um, but some of them do go into kind of the implications of these battles. Um, for example, Mark L. Donald, uh, who is a Navy SEAL medic, he has a book coming out in March called Battle Ready, and that's a memoir of a of a SEAL warrior medic. Again, you'll notice in in a lot of these books they refer to themselves not so often as soldiers, but as warriors. That's really how they see themselves. Um, but Mark Donald in Battle Ready does talk about, um, you know, because he's a medic, he does talk a bit about what happens when these guys return home, you know, with oftentimes PTSD. Um, but I haven't seen as many books necessarily about coming home. I, I'd hate to say because they're less exciting, but, you know, people people do want to see the battle. And while coming home is important, too, um, maybe they aren't going to sell as many copies. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and we're talking to Publishers Weekly Reviews editor Sam Slayton, and he's telling us about uh, books and trends and history and military nonfiction. And right now we're talking about um, the SEALs and and a couple of books that have come out about the Navy SEALs. And is it in this book uh, that he talks about how uh, during this you're you're talking about the hazing, um, uh, that he talks about having ribs broken and and teeth shattered. Is it in this book? Uh, I'm not. I'm not familiar with that portion of it. I mean, it, there, there were there were some absolutely you know horrifying portions of you know having to jump into uh, during Hell Week that is of having to break in right. or jump into um, you know ice cold waters, then get out, then strip down, lay on the concrete for for several minutes, and jump back in. I didn't. Uh, I didn't encounter. I haven't encountered in these books any broken ribs, but I, I wouldn't necessarily put it past them. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And uh, so so we've been talking about most recent war and conflicts. And uh, have you been seeing any other books on any previous wars? I mean, anything Vietnam or? Well, you know, uh, we, we've been talking primarily about memoirs um, and uh, specifically of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Um, but there are also a lot of oral histories, which is not to say that these are just transcriptions of interviews. Um, mm-hmm. You know, these are... Uh, 
there have been a lot of authors that have gone out there and spent years interviewing veterans of various wars. And, um, you know, obviously that takes an enormous amount of time. You, it produces an enormous amount of material. And because they don't want to just provide these transcriptions, they have to turn them into some sort of a narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got a couple books coming out um, in, the next, in the next couple months that, uh, that where authors have taken these oral histories and turned them into something really interesting. Um, Peter Eichstadt, who is the um, director or, or the Afghanistan country director for, of the Institute for War and Peace reporting at The Hague, is coming at, and he's reported on um, the Ugandan child soldiers, mm-hmm. Somali pirates, and war in the Congo. Um, so he's, he's seen a lot of it. Uh, he has a book coming out soon called Above the Din of War, subtitled Afghans Speak About Their Lives, Their Country, and Their Future, and Why America Should Listen. And he basically went all over the country and interviewed Afghans, you know, from across the board. Uh, you know, the press release has it that, you know, he, he spoke to a former warlord, Taliban, a Taliban judge, victims of self-immolation, which is kind of a strange phrase when you think that it was self-induced. Um, and all, but also, you know, really courageous individuals like female politicians who are going out there and trying to, to speak for their country, men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have some oral histories coming out for wars that people um, may not be thinking so much about, given the, the one we've been in for so long these past couple of years. Yeah. Philip F. Napoli is the director of the Veterans Oral History Project at Brooklyn College. And in, uh, let's see, in June, he's got a book coming out called An Oral History of New York City's Vietnam Veterans, oh. bringing it all back home. And um, so he, he, you know, along with the help of some graduate students, he spent, he spent years interviewing veterans who either now live in New York or were from New York. Um, and he amassed something like 600 hours of tapes. But he's taken these, these, these tapes and these interviews, and while a lot of the, uh, of the material is, are direct quotes from, the people, from his interviewees, mm-hmm. he also you know, uses his interactions with them to kind of tell their story. And it turns out that while these are primarily New, while these are New York City's veterans, it's also you know, the story of many of the veterans that were in Vietnam, you know, because they were all there they and they experienced similar things there. And is this book, uh, you, you said the title is Bringing It All Back Home. Mm-hmm. Is this a, a small press or is this a, a major press that's putting it out? This is actually from Hill and Wang, which I believe is an, an imprint of Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Yeah. Right, right. Wow. And and what is the size of this? I mean, you say you've got 600 hours of interviews. Yeah. Um, that's what he started with. Um, okay. So he's pulled it down. It's it's manageable. You know, there he, this book, Bringing It All Back Home, clocks in around, you know, 230, about 230 pages. Um, but Richard Rubin, on the other hand, um, he's, got another, he's got a book coming out soon called The Last of the Doughboys. Now, this one publishes in May from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. This one, I think, is really unique because mm-hmm. it, couldn't, it can't happen again. What Richard Rubin did 10 years ago is he set out to interview, if you can believe it, all of the surviving World War I vets that he could find. My gosh, they're barely even World War II vets. Exactly. And so 10 years ago, there were a couple dozen, which is amazing considering they were all between the ages of 101 and 113. Wow. Yeah, so 10 years ago, he went out and interviewed these, these vets, these doughboys. Um, now they're all gone. But he, Richard Rubin kind of got this last look at um, what he terms in the subtitle, the forgotten generation and their forgotten world war. You know, it's the generation that gave birth yeah. to the greatest generation. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because there, there, there can't be another book like this ever again, because he, you know, got to them right before, unfortunately, they passed away. So do you, do you know if um, any of these oral history books have multimedia associated with them? Is there any way for us lay people to hear some of those original interviews? Are they putting up video, anything like that? You know, I haven't seen anything about that, but it'd be something interesting to look into. You'd think there would be, you know, just a wealth of, uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be really interesting to be able to hear the voices of, of these doughboys. For example, Richard Rubin talked at the very beginning of the book about how nervous he was going in to interview his first vet, who was 107 at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was struggling to, as he put it, add 25 years to the octogenarians that he knew. And he just couldn't picture it. He was trying to, you know, prepare himself for what it was, what this person was going to look like, what their living situation was going to be like. Um, I'd imagine their voices must carry a lot. So uh, I'm not sure if any of these include that, but it'd be be interesting to look into. 
Now, have you had a chance to yourself just dip into this one book? I, I find this one really uh, uh, fascinating. And we're talking about The Last of the Doughboys, uh, written by Richard Rubin. And uh, uh, for your listeners out there, this is Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm speaking with uh, our reviews editor for uh, nonfiction, uh, history, military history, Sam Slayton. And we're talking about um, military histories, oral histories. And have you been able to to, to dip into this book? Has a galley of this come out yet? Come I've actually got it right in front of me. And I was oh, looking yeah. through it right before we, we started speaking. And um, as soon as I get off the phone, I'm going to jump right back into it. Uh, but, you know, one of the, what, he, what Richard Rubin opens up with is, um, you know, he says, before, you know, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, before the Internet, before, you know, uh, Vietnam and JFK and all this, you know, before all that, there was World War One, which people forget was referred to back then as the war to end all wars, which mm-hmm. in light of the violence that followed it in the 20th and 21st centuries, it's, it's easy to forget that that was how people viewed it at the time. Um, but I haven't actually gotten into any of the stories of the individual vets yet, but you know, Ru- Ruben's story in itself is also interesting. You know, it's not just the stories of these vets. It's also Ruben's story of rediscovering these people who lived through the war that was supposed to end all the other wars. Mm-hmm. Wow. Fantastic. And so, so we've been talking about this this last of the Doughboys, and 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 this is an oral history. So these are this is this uh, interviews uh, wrote. I mean, so does it go from one voice to another, one character, you know, one one person to another, or does he does he have a narrative around it? He definitely has a narrative around it. You know, he talks about going to um, going to the last. Veterans Day Parade, which I believe was in 2003, to feature a living oh, wow. uh, World War One vet. So there were still some living afterwards, but they weren't participating in these in these parades. Um, but so it, it it's it's not as I said earlier, it's not um, direct transcriptions. You know, he um, it's it's more of a conversation um, padded with with Rubens own experiences, and you know, he he definitely sets the scene for readers. It's, it, it's a read. It's not something to kind of uh, you know, for only military buffs. Um, it's something that I think would really grab the interest of, of, of anybody interested in really, really amazing nonfiction. When I get back to the office, I'm going to come by your desk and take a look at this. And then I'm going to fight him for it. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're right that that has broad appeal. That sounds very interesting. Yeah. Wonderful. And you were mentioning um, forgotten stories, but I heard there were also some books coming out that have a, a different perspective of forgotten stories that tell um, the, the stories of women who were involved in wars. Yeah, you know, I, a lot of these books, um, just because, you know, the majority of soldiers have been and are and remain men, um, a lot of, for a lot of these books, that is, remains the focus, the men who have, who have fought these wars or been involved in them. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of progress when it comes to uh, what women can do in the military, but they're still, by law, not allowed to become Navy SEALs or enlist uh, as a soldier or a, as an enlisted individual on a submarine. Um, but that doesn't say that they haven't um, played their part and played a, a really major role. Um, Denise Kiernan has a book coming out soon called The Girls of Atomic City, The Untold Story of the Women Who Helped Win World War II. And this revolves around the Oak Ridge, um, Oak Ridge Tennessee, which is one of the, uh, the epicenters of the Manhattan Project. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when most people think of the Manhattan Project, they think, of course, of the atomic bomb. They also think of J. Robert Oppenheimer saying, uh, you know, that the detonation of the bomb reminded him of that quote from the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that dramatic all the time. You know, there were people living their day-to-day lives getting this project up and running, um, which is not to say that they all knew exactly what they were working on. The Girls of Atomic City basically tells the story of these women who flocked to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which just kind of sprung up out of nowhere, um, as I said, as the epicenter of the Manhattan Project. And you had women working there who were everything from couriers to chemists. Um, so they weren't just, you know, housekeepers helping the scientists. They were, in, often, in many cases, doing the science. Um, and just as Robert Oppenheimer, you know, worked hard towards the completion of the Manhattan Project, um, it had a devastating effect on him after the detonation of the atomic bomb. And, you know, Kiernan touches on that as well. You know, we were talking about, do these military memoirs talk about what happens when you come home from the war? Um, it's interesting to see how these women, which many of whom uh, Kiernan interviewed, uh, feel about their time at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, um, because many of them were young. 
but they were also, uh, and so, you know, they were living their lives, they were falling in love, they were, they were doing this and that, and she talked about all that, but they were also working on this project that would come, go to change the world. Women were actually really very heavily involved on the home front during World War II because so many men went off to fight. And mm-hmm. so the women were the ones in the factories. I've seen some wonderful photographs of women building bombers that they weren't allowed to fly. Yeah, it's really it's some really interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. What else have you got along those lines? Um, jumping back quite a ways, um, we've got two books coming out soon um, about women in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. So... Sarah, a lot of people are familiar with Philippa Gregory's book, uh, historical fiction about the Wars of the Roses, or as many people know them, the Cousins Wars. Um, but Sarah Gristwood has a book coming out um, from Basic Books in, let's see, in March, called Blood Sisters, The Women Behind the Wars of the Roses. And in this book, she talks about, you know, kind of the wives, the sisters, the queens, the daughters, etc., who also, you know, maybe they didn't wield swords, but they did play an, an enormous part in the uh, in kind of like the breaking down of the Plantagenets and the ushering in of the Tudor line. Um, and some of them were turned out to be pretty ruthless campaigners for for you know their sides. Um, and Leonie Frida, who is many people will know for her biography of Catherine de Medici, titled Catherine de Medici. Mm-hmm. Um, has one coming out soon called The Deadly Sisterhood, a story of women, power, and intrigue in the Italian Renaissance. Mm. Um, now, this one, in, in this one, if you, if you are looking for women wielding swords, this one has it. Um, I, I don't know a lot about it myself, but apparently there was a lot of fighting, and Italy wasn't that great of a place to be in the 15th century. <laughs> a lot of warring clans and families. And the women in Italy in the 15th century, at least the ones profiled in Frida's book, were very, very active. Um, you know, they led troops into battle. They, you know, deceived the enemy. They, uh, you know, did a lot of really important stuff. Fascinating. Wow. That well, sounds great. That sounds yeah. like definitely some books to pick up in the spring. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for giving us that preview of what's coming out uh, in the military history and generally the historical field. Uh, Absolutely. We've, we've been talking with PW Reviews editor Sam Slayton. Again, thanks so much, Sam. It's really great to have you on the show and hope you'll come back. Thank you. Sam. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. So tune in next week for more excellent, excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.